0: Hey y'all, you know we're a non right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com femfreak. Also fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give, please head over to patreon.com Femfreak.
1: She shot like a Hollywood star and that doesn't happen to black women often. It hadn't before and even after. Welcome to Feminist
0: Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and this season, my co-host, Kat Spada, and I have been examining films that tell the story of Hollywood throughout the decades. We've learned about how the film industry and American culture have influenced each other throughout the 20th century by watching two movies from each decade and speaking with an expert who guides us through the trends and legacy of cinema from years past. This week, we're talking about Hollywood in the 1960s. Reed Daniels?
1: What the hell is going on here? Are you going to take Johnny away from me? Take
2: a nap because
1: you're going to need all your energy tonight. Silly
2: boy. The first film we watched in preparation for our discussion was Martin Ritt's Paris Blues from 1961, featuring an all-star cast of Sidney Poitier and Paul Newman as expat jazz musicians, Diane Carroll and Joanne Woodward as the tourists they romance, and Louis Armstrong in a cameo appearance. We also watched Stanley Kramer's 1967 film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Poitier as half of an interracial couple breaking the news of their engagement with his fiance's parents, played by Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn.
0: Joining us to discuss these movies and more is Dr. Falana Payton, a scholar activist with research interests in Black film and television history and popular culture, as well as gender and queer studies, and who is currently a professor of film and media studies at the University of California, Irvine. Hi.
1: Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, we're so excited to have you on the show diving into the 60s, which is such a thrilling time in American
2: history.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I'm so curious how did this become your academic field of interest?
1: That's a good question. I mean, my um, work uh, kind of spans many decades. But my specific research interest is on Black women performers beginning as early as the 30s and moving into contemporary into the contemporary moment. Um, So in studying Black women performers allowed me to cover and think about multiple decades and kind of how their images, representation, and even their performance styles, you know, changed, but also things that remain the same across decades. So beginning as early as Nina Mae McKinney and Hallelujah in um, the early 30s and then moving to, like, Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge and studying those people get you through the 50s and 60s. Um, and, yeah, uh, I think about, you know, them alongside people like, you know, Whitney Houston and Beyonce. Uh, so, yeah, it kind of gives me a, a a range of decades, um, how to think about film in relation to these women. Um, and then also, of course, popular culture and politics, too.
0: So I'm curious, like, what's happening in the 60s in film and television and pop culture around this period of time? I
1: mean, the 60s was a difficult time, I think, for large, um, uh, many populations, many different populations in the states and outside of the states. But I mean, in Hollywood in particular, um, they were struggling. Like, um, I think you all talked about um, the Hayes Code and censorship in earlier episodes and kind of the impact of um, censorship in the film industry and kind of how that was transitioning, but specifically in the sixties, what was working for Hollywood and the studio system stopped working. And that had a lot to do with um, the popularity of television, but also just the direction in which the country was heading in regards to politically. Um, there was a lot of countercultural movements, um, the civil rights movements, black power movements, the Vietnam War, um, campus protests. There was just several different like enclaves that were kind of formulating in the 60s that disallowed Hollywood to speak to mass audiences in the ways that it had previously. Mm. So there was a lot of just like kind of flailing um, in that that decade because previously, you know, Hollywood was able to make like, you know, family dramas and classics that kind of, you know, spoke to the all-American family household, which was, you know, white, Um, middle-class, you know, families and moving into the 60s with all of the solar uprisings and conversations that were kind of splitting up the country in very particular ways. um, Hollywood was no longer able to kind of, you know, um, reach the same audiences as massively as they were prior to. That's so interesting. We talked
2: uh, in our 1950s episode last week about also like television has come into people's homes. So Mm -hmm. audience behavior is different, but I'm not a historian, but when I think of the 60s, there is so much of that sort of domestic versus um, international relations kind of thing in terms of um, the space race and the Cold War and Vietnam and all of that's happening. And whether or not those conversations are actually happening in communi- in communication with the civil rights fight the cult, the growth of counterculture and yeah that sort of farce of a homogenous american culture that is like finally people are realizing it doesn't really exist there isn't a monoculture that no. everyone's paying attention to but um how exciting then to maybe finally have storytelling that's
1: acknowledging that in the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there are all of these like individual movement, movements happening globally, but also, especially in regards to like radical, the development of radical politics in the US, they were also in conversation um, with each other as well. So people were kind of using television, media, um, and then like the films that were coming out internationally in regards to like the French New Wave and like Italian Neorealism, like, Americans were watching these films and kind of getting new ideas around what the possibility of filmmaking could be that was far, far from what Hollywood, what the Hollywood studio system had been making, you know, Mm -hmm. films about like, you know, um, war and sex and politics that had not been addressed in American Hollywood cinema specifically. Yeah. So, you know, in relation to
0: this what we're talking about around like what's happening in the world versus what's happening in Hollywood. Something that you talk about is um, like black actors of of all genders being a lot more active and activist in in their in their careers or in the t- during this time period um, that were sort of known in the fifties. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting when we think about like who the black actors of like previous time periods and kind of like sometimes people like to um kind of reframe them in the 60s um as as if like something like major shifted in their politics in the 60s. But what I've noticed actually, particularly when it comes to like somebody like Lena Horn, who had been around since the late 30s, early 40s, um considered like the first black star um because of her Hollywood contract with MGM, it was that she had a, a long-term contract, which usually indicated a studio's investment in a star in a, in a person to create a star um but lena Horne's career actually hollywood career is really um it leaves a lot to be desired honestly she only really had two films in which she was like a lead she had a lead role and then everything after that mgm kind of just um uh, put her starring herself um singing um in films in a way that could be um the, those those parts could be taken out of films when they were played in the south so she couldn't really be a part of the narrative plot of any of the films really um after um say Cabin in the sky and stormy weather the rest of the film she was just you know singing um and could easily be removed um, from the films for segregated theaters um but also she's kind of looked she was looked at as somebody who was like you know kind of went along with you know hollywood and seeing very like you know there was a the persona of being very glamorous there was a persona of being um kind of um assimilated into like hollywood the hollywood studio system um but there's also like several moments throughout her career particularly in the 40s and 50s where she was like very explicit about her discomfort with hollywood realizing that she was chosen just because of the way she looked as a light-skinned black woman mm-hmm. so being like you know, in line with ideas of Eurocentric standards of beauty, um, and speaking out about that, speaking and also being very clear about like, you know, despite, you know, certain levels of privilege, I'm still very much seen as a Black woman, therefore treated like a Black woman. And so there were moments throughout her career, her early career where that kind of came out, but it was in the sixties where she became extremely vocal. Um, she was a, a part of conversations, um, with Martin Luther King um and 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 all of the organizers um she was a part she was in communication with you know harry belafonte was also seen as somebody who was a leader in the civil rights movement and especially like the hollywood um set of mm-hmm. what was happening in civil rights um but like i said i like to acknowledge that like specifically somebody like lean horn and even like eartha kit throughout their careers there was you know, moments and, and situations in which they were, you know, very vocal or, um, did not necessarily align with, you know, traditional standards of just like assimilation within the industry. So yeah, in the sixties, um, people like Lena Horn specifically, extremely vocal, um, gave a lot of, um, she really gave a lot of, she was and she she talked about admiring the new generation of organizers and protesters for their commitment and for their consistency in ways that she felt like she hadn't necessarily done prior to. Um, she was very vocal about her um, heartbreak when several black um leaders were being assa- assassinated um, and like in constant communication like i said with the leaders of the movement throughout the 60s, same with Harry Belafonte, um, Sydney Portier, you know, but a lot of times it's really focused on like the Black men. I think Harry and Sydney are always really like kind of put to the forefront of the conversation while people like Lena Horne or Josephine Baker, Eartha Kitt, Diane Carroll, the work that they were doing during that time period is not really talked about as significant when it really was, especially um doing things when I feel like the, the men that we talk about weren't necessarily like ready to do. Like Lena Horne and Eartha Kitt were like um, super, super vocal early in the late 50s when Louis Armstrong spoke out against um, the what was happening in Arkansas in regards to The Little Rock Nine. Um, there was only a few like Black actors in Hollywood who were actually vocal at that time and it was, Lena know, Horne and Eartha Kitt, but that's kind of like not really talked about. So it's it's something that was consistent throughout their career, but in the sixties, it became because of television, because of the civil rights movement being such a visual um, example of like what was happening in this country because of TV and all that, like that's when it became very clear, like their politics were, um, left leaning and then also later becoming more radical.
2: And I want to ask and this is not as much about the politics but you you really piqued my interest earlier talking about the the continuum then talking about Whitney Houston and Beyoncé and these figures today. I'm curious about the audience, like but that the machine is thinking of, that the industry, media, creative machine is thinking of. So we had heard even since we were talking about movies of the 30s and 40s and how the reels could be split up so they could play differently in a southern audience. Um the movies that Lena Horne is in are being created i suppose by a studio for a white audience like at what point does that or does that begin to change because i think that's something we still think about today with with musicians or if we look at how Whitney Houston's career trajectory in the 90s like mm-hmm. who are who are we talking about in terms of like ticket dollars
1: yeah Well, what it's interesting about most Black women performers, when they're actually given the opportunity to like have a leading role in Hollywood, it is because of their um, seemingly ability to cross over or their proof that they've already crossed over in some kind of usually in the music industry. So when it comes to Lena, she was picked because she could obviously because of being beautiful and Seemingly like less political would be attractive to mainstream white audiences as well as already have been popular amongst black audiences because she was a performer, um, a singer in nightclubs prior to that. Um, And we see that historically, like across decades, that most of the time the Black women performers who are considered later on stars began their career in the music industry. And so, in my mind, in the way that I think about um this work is that Hollywood itself has to make sure they 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 need black women first to prove themselves as mm. famous, prove themselves as like having some kind of, you know, attraction to audiences, even if it's just black audiences before they give them the opportunity to then, you know, possibly put some investment towards them in Hollywood. So we see that with Lena Horns career, she's she's picked because she could cross over and Diane Carroll because she can't could cross over. Um, and a lot of their films, like I'll, I'll admit, like in the 30s or in the 40s um, with Lena Horne and moving into they were a lot of them were in all black films. Um, but these were also all black fil- all black films by studios um, that would hopefully also attract white audiences. Mm-hmm. So they weren't necessarily black films for black audiences. They were black films that would hopefully also attract white audiences. And that was kind of the point. Um, Lena Horne, I would say like the the movie where it was like, she was in a film that was a film with black folks that was possibly for a black audience. It didn't come until the seventies when she was in the, in the whiz with Di- with, uh, Diana Ross, you know, right. and Michael Jackson and all of them. Like that is when it's like, oh, she's in a movie that is for black audiences. But prior to that, I mean, she quits Hollywood because she recognizes that there's no place for her. Um, and they're never actually going to give her an opportunity to do the kind of work that her, her like peers were able to do so she really is like by the end of her contract she really like gives up on Hollywood and really focuses on like recording and just music after that because there was no place for her and you see that the inconsistency um in like their Hollywood careers in everyone's um and so you see large gaps and, and then also like I said we talked about TV a lot of Black women found more spaces to be in TV in regards to like you know, the the game shows being featured on game shows and variety shows, like that's where we see a lot of their appearances, particularly we as we hit the 60s, um, much less in film, because there's not a lot of films that come out that can actually, you know, like that is a like a a substantive like attempt to create something for black audiences with black women at the center. There's not that in the 60s, really.
0: I guess I'm curious about the um progress of roles both like for black actors um male female of all genders in terms of like when or how the shift happens to having roles that are a little more humane right that are a little more well um like there's more complexity less tropey less you know racially stereotyped
1: um i mean some people will say we're still struggling with that today yeah absolutely (laughs) Uh (laughs) um I mean, I think if we're looking at the careers of Black men there, it's been a lot more opportunities. Um, So we can never forget to think about to talk about patriarchy also and the role of patriarchy in Mm -hmm. um, Hollywood filmmaking. It also very much is a part of the history of Black performers on screen. So, I mean, despite some of the roles maybe um, that Sidney Poitier played, he was given several, several opportunities to play leading performer to play a leading performer in in films in ways that you know black women counterparts just did not have i always say like it's super unfair and i hate it when people do it um i'm constantly pushing back against even people comparing their careers of somebody like denzel washington and holly berry because when we look mm-hmm. at like the opportunities and the amount of film roles that are given and, and even the the privilege and access and resources that somebody like denzel Washington has it does not at all compare to Holly Berry's career. And she can admit that she will talk about that. You know, like there's actually no real comparison aside from them both being black actors, but the ways in which patriarchy has kind of like impeded our visions of like really being able to recognize, like, you know, the discrimination in Hollywood is really like fascinating for me because there's absolutely no comparison between the two. And just like there's no comparison between somebody like, Sydney Poitier and Lena Horne—they cannot be compared when we look at the amount of opportunities and roles these people received over time, and yeah, this opportunity, different opportunities to play different types of roles over time. Does it compare?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about that too because Sydney Poitier's career is very—it's um, it, the one—it's the one that stands out. It's the one that everyone talks about, right? In terms of of the opportunity to play bigger roles, more in, Involved roles that are less, um, archetypes or stereotypes. Um, but we, and, and when we think about like Paul Robeson and Harry Belafonte, like those are the names that kind of come to the forefront around this time. And that, like you're saying these, like the female actors of this time, the black female actors of this time, aren't really uttered in the same breath, right? They aren't really given that same, um, historical notoriety and treatment partly because it seems like they weren't given those opportunities then either.
1: Mm -mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, I feel like we should have like a little mini, just a whole chat about, about his career because it is uh, his career. And even like the, this archetype that was invented and the stereotype of like his, the roles that he often got to play. But I'm curious about creators also. Like I can think of, Zora Neale Hurston did some filmmaking, but then, like, at what point are we starting to actually have like Black women or Black men behind the scenes of these films?
1: Yeah, I mean, really, the studio system destroyed (laughs) the opportunity for specifically like Black independent filmmakers to have any kind of opportunity or even access to resources in the same way as these gigantic conglomerates, right? So. I think you know there are scattered um, like black filmmakers slash you know like scattered opportunities, but not really really anything major until I would say you know the early '70s um, when UCLA let in a their first cohort really of black filmmakers into um, the film school, which is now mm. we, we we discuss those filmmakers as LA Rebellion filmmakers. But um, that consists of like Charles Burnett and Haile Garima um, and Julie Dash um, to come later. Zanabu Irene Davis, so a host of Black um, filmmakers that, were, that received film training, training specifically at UCLA at the end of the 60s. And we see their work coming out in the early 70s um, alongside um, more commercial filmmakers like Gordon Parks um, and uh, Melvin Van Peebles. Gordon Parks Jr. So we see like the burgeoning black exploitation era in the early 70s. And that is kind of like our first like major um, moment in which we're seeing black folks behind the cameras and also like um, um, our resources and programs to um, get more black people behind the camera, particularly. So like there was a company called Third World uh, Cinema. Um, and it was a host of black and brown and just also, um, left leaning, um, like folks from Hollywood, like Ossie Davis and Rita Moreno and a, a lot of other filmmakers who came together to create a production company where they not only like they made films that were, you know, for black audiences with or, or black and brown audiences, but also had a training program behind the scenes mm. um, to try to get more people into the industry because yeah. you know Hollywood had been working basically off you know nepotism friendships and that's completely and totally white um, up until I mean today, but it has a history, like there has to be there had to be programs put in place so that um, that could slowly start to shift and that was happening in the se- in the early seventies and they're one of their. They're probably most notarized films that they, um, that third world cinema made was Claudine starring Diane Carroll um, mm. and James Earl Jones. Um, and that was one of the, probably like the biggest film that they did um, with that company. But they had, that was their whole other point was not just making the film, but training um, Black folks. But yeah, we don't really see a large group until the late 60s, early 70s. You you mentioned
2: yeah. Julie Dash, right? First studio film that was released by a black female filmmaker in 91. So yeah. <laughs> I think that's how recent we're talking. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm like, I'm glad you asked that question, Kat, because I was just thinking like, guess who's coming to dinner is directed by a white dude, mm-hmm. you know? And like the whiz is directed by a white dude. And you're just like, what would these movies be if they weren't like through the lens of white people? I feel I like, I think guess who's coming to dinner was written by a uh, white screenwriters too. Mm-hmm. By I looked at that correctly. And you, and it's like, you know, and that's a movie, I mean, we'll get into it, but like that's a movie very specifically, specifically about race um, that you're like, well, why the fuck are white people writing about this? Right. Um, and and I think we can answer that question yeah. like as, as we get into it, but it, it's that sort of frustration of like, and, and we still deal with this, right? Of like what, like let people tell their own stories, like mm-hmm. stop, you know, like give them the opportunities to do that. Yeah. So, yeah yeah I guess I'm curious like so we you picked Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Paris Blues mm-hmm. as the two movies for us to watch like what what is it about those movies that you felt like would help us really sort of understand the 60s and understand um part you know the work that you're studying
1: yeah I mean as I, I mentioned before there, there wasn't a, a, a like a, a huge amount of work for me to choose from honestly when i think about the 60s because it was so tumultuous socially and politically and the films that were coming out that had black folks in them or in the lead were not really super significant there and there's like i feel like large gaps where it's just like not really much to talk about in regards to hollywood and black making black performance because hollywood was struggling in this way but I, i i love actually i love paris blues Um, I think that's something that's not necessarily talked about a lot. I don't know. I don't think it really did, you know, like super well at the box office. But I think it's interesting um, because of, you know, the topic, um, who's in it um, with Paul Newman, you know, Joanne Woodward, Sidney Poitier, Diane Carroll, and then, of course, Louis Armstrong, um, and then the conversation around expatriatism, um, race being central, and it's handled in a way that you know it seem is pretty like on the nose. You know the conversations mm. are not super super realistic, but it it was trying to do something. And the director Martin Ritt is somebody who was known as like a you know social justice filmmaker or a problem, issue movie uh, issue movie yeah kind yeah. of guy. Um, and so you can see what he was trying to do, and I think the attempt is valid and um I just I I think that my favorite aspect of the film is that like it's very very clear at the very beginning of the movie that Paul Newman's character wants to be with Diane Carroll like it's yeah so disrespectful and rude like (laughs) how those first like interactions actually go you know and it's like in another world that is what was supposed to happen in that film you know
2: yeah I and I read that that was the plan. But yeah. they just were like, well, we'll keep a like there's just no way that the audience is gonna go for it. But it was originally going to have those two couples swapped.
0: It, yeah, it's really bizarre because like so there's there's this whole like beginning where he he like says all these white girls look alike, you know, is she as pretty as you are? Like he's clearly hitting on her, she's clearly not interested. Uh he's such a dick to them when they like come out of the the um the jazz club and then it's never addressed again. Like yeah. it's just like, well, we're gonna we're gonna get our girls and like do our things
1: and it's just what, yeah. what the fuck. <laughs> he's like, terrible. He's actually so horrible to particularly to like Joanne Woodward's character. He's just like disrespectful. And she's just still like, I want to be with you because... Like over and over again, right? (laughs) Where you're like, do you have any self-esteem?
0: And actually that question is sort of like, it is a a very obvious part of the film because near the end when she's like, he's just such a dick to her and just leaves her over and over again. And she's like, I don't care. I just want you. And I don't know about you, but I'm screaming being like, what the fuck is wrong with you? There's (laughs) also like, I'm... He's not that like... Paul Newman is so so like Hollywood like just that very traditional Hollywood attractive that he's almost not even attractive <laughs> anymore, you know?
2: So that's that's tough for me as somebody who has thrown herself <laughs> at many a basic man um in my in my earlier days, but like <laughs> also like what I think of Paul Newman right as a sex symbol and and Sidney never had roles where he was a, a sex symbol. Like he was There's something about how like how desexualized like he and Diane Carroll are in this movie. Like it seems kind of clear that, well, we know it's explicit, right? That Joanne Woodward has thrown herself at him and he's kind of like, How many men are you throwing yourself at? Because that was very, very obvious. And it's sort of like, oh, she's gonna go, you know, Diane Carroll's gonna go back to the hotel room. Maybe Sidney Poitier Poitier is, like, very um, polite about it. Like, they don't really ever get into that, whereas you see, like, The Morning After with the white characters.
1: Exactly. And, I mean, that has everything to do. Like, Sidney Poitier could not be a sex symbol if he was going to be, you know, like, seen as uh, a crossover star, as, as somebody who, you know, mainstream white audiences could feel safe around. He could not be this sexual person um, if white audiences were to feel safe. Um, and it's just, it's so wild because like I said, you do see the morning after with Paul Newman and Joanne. Um, but you don't see any inkling that there has been like any sexual contact between, um, Diane Carroll and Sydney Portier, which is absolutely intentional and also unfortunate because it kind of leaves their relationship being kind of flat. Um, mm-hmm. very flat actually. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There, you know, his character, Sydney's character is interesting because I'm like, so Paul Newman's character is just an asshole that's like, ah, my music and that's all I care about. And women and blah, blah, blah are like secondary. And so I was sort of like, okay, well, Sydney's like the counterpoint to that and, you know, is supporting him in his music and like maybe treats women better. But like, not really. Like, he's kind of a fucking dick to her, too. Like, it's just the whole time I'm like, both of these dudes are... Terrible. terrible. Yeah. Like what <laughs> why are you what is happening here? Um, so then there's also all of this stuff around while it does feel their relationship feels secondary, and then I feel like the C plot is the is the character whose name I don't want to use, uh, who has a drug mm. problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm like, that felt really wedged in here for n- almost no reason. And every time it came back to it, which was like three times, you're like, the yeah. fuck? Like, who would what, what do we care? Yeah. Um, but the The piece of this is that there's this debate between two Black Americans around whether you stay and fight or whether you Mm -hmm. go live somewhere where you're treated humanely. Right. And that, you know, that feels like the reason that that existed in the movie, their relationship and those people existed to have that conversation.
1: Absolutely. And those conversations were happening. So I think that is why I appreciate the film is because it was like, you know, that conversation was something that. Had been happening specifically since World War II. And so many um Black men had gone overseas to fight and realized that the racism was just different. You know, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't as structural and, and and blatant and disrespectful as American racism was, you know, and there was a, a, a type of fetishization, especially in Europe, for black Americans that almost makes you feel kind of loved and appreciated if you're treated like shit, you know, in America, you know. So like. It's kind of, it, it's, it can, it's super understandable that these conversations um, are happening. And yeah, I think just for the film to come out at the time it did, um, to be having like these, and, and to put that conversation kind of in the forefront, I think is interesting. Um, I also think the way they shoot Diane Carroll is like they would shoot, Hollywood star and that's mm. like the lighting on her face I was just when I was re-watching the film I was just like this is how you would light a Hollywood star you know and she just yeah. looks so beautiful when she's in the frame and this it's so unfortunate that there was so few opportunities to see her in in a leading like as a as a as a like love interest you know in a hollywood film it's a missed opportunity because she's so gorgeous and i'm like just the small moments where we get to see that type of focus and lighting on her is just like as something i i i think is it should be talked about a little bit more despite all the issues in the film like she shot like a hollywood star and that doesn't happen to black women often and it hadn't been before and even after you know if you look at her um leading role opportunities after paris but well, they didn't they are, they still aren't rolling in despite like there being something very like special about her and you can see it in just these very small moments in the film well yeah it's so
2: interesting talking about the fetishization or the like this this love of black Americans coming to to Europe when this movie is set in the jazz scene
1: mm-hmm.
2: and like that we're allowed to, so like Paul Newman, I mean, just who's allowed to be like transgressive in a way, right? We, we can see Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward in bed together because they're married. We can see Paul Newman go handle the drug deal because the guitarist, like maybe it would be too unseemly to have like an Italian French character mm-hmm. handling that, that transaction. And, Paul Newman's character is like he's not only the best uh, uh, trombone player, but he's also like writing his masterpiece. And then Sidney's character is like a session musician who could probably make more money if he traveled around touring with somebody. And the only reason he wants to stay is because it's easier to live in Paris. Like there's there's something that's kind of facile about his character or even Diane Carroll. She's a, she's a teacher. Like that's her story. She's a Mm -hmm. teacher. Joanne Woodward is a divorcee with, with kids and lovers. Mm -hmm. And like, there's even more to this character when uh, ultimately like it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like it doesn't matter for the plot that she's interesting.
0: Well, and I think that that it ties in to like the, the limitations of when you look at like, guess who's coming to dinner? You know, the, only reason this movie flies is because he is the absolute most fucking perfect, perfect. human. Yes. That, yeah. Like, <laughs> right. That there's no if, ands, or buts about like, the only reason you would not want your daughter to marry this man is because he's black. Right. And that's the, that trapping of the, like the, the kind of model minority, uh, <coughs> I, I, can I, sorry, can I just have a quick, a quick aside? I do want to acknowledge about, Like, so there were all these conversations and still to some degree are conversations about black Americans wanting to go to Europe because they're treated better, but that doesn't mean that black people are treated better in France, for example, right? Like, like French black people, uh, get treated very badly. And so there is, I think that that, that point Mm. I just wanted to amplify of like, it's a fetishization of Americans in those spaces. Right. And that like, how fucking complicated, yes. <laughs> like how deeply complicated is that energy of, you know, this isn't a, a safe haven for black folks, just, you know, whatever. It's just better for some than for others in, in a space like that. Um, I also just, before we move on to guess who I, I had the best fucking transition and I ruined it. Cause I'm like, i have to say these <laughs> other things. Um, I'm a huge jazz fan and I'm so glad we watched this because I had never seen it. And so like I didn't know. Like Duke Ellington did all the music for this yeah, movie. Yeah, I was nominated for like, Academy Award for the score. Yeah, man, and it was so good. And I fucking love Duke. And I was like, this is great. And like the whole like Louis Armstrong showing up and doing his little cameos. I'm just like, love, love this. It was this is that great. was so
2: fun. Like that yeah. scene in the in the club. I thought, like, boy. There's a lot of movies that try to make this a fun scene and fail. <laughs> and, like, this one, I was like, oh, I wish I was there. I wish yeah. I was there, like, <laughs> drumming on the wall. Like, these characters who just, it everyone seemed like they were actually having, like, the best night of their life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I have a question. As you were talking about, like, he's the perfect, perfect specimen of a human man, right? And guess oh, who's and, coming and to dinner. And guess who's talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like... I, I, this was the only movie in our entire series that I had seen before. i watched it probably in high school and watching it a second time. I kind of thought like, this is Spencer Tracy's movie more than anybody in yeah. this, anybody else. But, and, and like notably he died like two weeks after filming and was nominated for an Oscar posthumously. But like I'd seen In the Heat of the Night and that, and Lily's, uh, Lily's of the Field, like, he played all of these characters that were able to be as robust of characters, I think because they were perceived flawless, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, I don't know if I'm overthinking this, but is there something about the fact that he also was like, I mean, he was born in the US, but that he was like Bahamian and that it might've been different if he was an actor who was like read as African-American in a way that he maybe wasn't? Like, I don't know, again, I think I'm overthinking that, but people today talk about, like, British actors taking roles that maybe they're seen as more posh or, like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that was explicit, but it is something to note that he and Harry Belafonte, both Caribbean, are the biggest Black actors of the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And kind of, like, what does that mean even for like opportunities, early opportunities, or even right. being seen as other othered. you know? Um, I think there's there's definitely something there um, worth thinking about and how that kind of translates over time, even how we talk about, you know, um, Black British performers and kind of the fetishization of Black British actors in U.S. Hollywood filmmaking. Um, and that, I think, is a part of a very long history um, of that being like something that has been pointed out on numerous occasions by particularly black American performers. Yeah.
0: Um, okay. I had also seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, but I clearly didn't remember it because I thought it took place at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> like I I like I vaguely was like, oh, okay. So it 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 while I had seen it, it still was fresh eyes. I think that this is a very interesting movie at this moment, right? Because in 1967, In the Heat of the Night comes out, as well as Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And also the Loving versus Virginia um, case is happening in this year where this movie comes out about interracial marriage. Um, So, like, real hotbed moment in American politics and cinema. Um, And this movie is so, like it's smart in some ways, but it's really frustrating in some ways. And it's very about white people. And it's all about white people, both in terms of like, who's making it and who gets to talk about it in a way that you're like, oh my God. So I love the hypocrisy that comes out of like, these are like liberal, you know, quote unquote, liberal San Francisco (laughs) folks who like raise their daughter to love everyone and whatever, and now are being faced with the ramifications of that. But you also have This last scene, which is this fucking enormous monologue by this old white dude who is telling us all what to think about racism and to just like love each other. And I'm just sitting there being like, wait, what? Are you serious right now? Like, this is like, of course, this is how it ends, but like,
2: come on, Tilly, I need you to hear this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's just, and then you have this, like, it's just, and then you have the, 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 like, the black perspectives in this movie feel um so but like you have like everyone who's black in this movie is mad Mm -hmm. about what's happening right and it doesn't matter what they think because it only matters what these white hollywood you know historical celebrities think and so like the, the the balancing of this feels super off
1: yeah i mean in reality this film you know was actually completely and totally out of step with what was happening at the end of the sixties, it is a old, boring conversation at this point because we're in this age, we're in, in the stage of like the Vietnam War, like we're in the stage of the Black Power, the Black Panther Party was founded in 1966, you know, in Oakland, so it was already very much like a part of the conversation. SNCC's radicalism was a part of the conversation, like we were moving towards more radical politics at this point. So Sydney Portier. Guess who's coming to dinner was boring for so many people mm. at this point. It didn't actually reach audiences in the way; was it wasn't transformational in any kind of way. Honestly, maybe to some of the white people who saw it, but in the larger, you know, conversations that were happening politically, socially, politically, guess who's coming to dinner with the old, late film? So did did it last? I'm sorry. Does it? Because
0: ha- it has this historical legacy, right? That like this is one of those movies that we think about today as like, you know, like groundbreaking in terms of race or whatever. And I'm guessing maybe it's because of the Oscar noms. Yeah, I mean, that's like it gave it that that prestigiousness. The
1: Oscar noms of that next year. So 1968 Best Picture Oscar noms is historical because it was so anti-Hollywood and what Hollywood had kind of been known for. So like that year we have Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, and then Dr. Doolittle. And there was so much conversation around Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate as these like super countercultural films mm. that were completely and totally anti Hollywood, and now being a part of the conversation. And then two films with Sydney Portier, like it felt like the Oscars was trying to do something kind of radical, but still, in the end, you know, fought, fell flat per usual. Um, but like this was like a very like this was an attempt, I think, at the end of that. Um, at the end of a very tumultuous decade, very difficult time for the Hollywood studio system, trying to like galvanize like some type of, you know, like trying to figure out how to still get multiple audiences. Um, and that if you look at those nominees, that is what that is attempting to do. But I mean, yeah, I guess who's coming to get dinner is monumental because of the type of conversation and the type of conversation and who's in it. I mean, we have like Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, like big, big, you know, Hollywood stars. Yeah. Yeah. Icons. But as I said, like the time it came out, the year it came out, this conversation was so boring. It wasn't doing anything (laughs) radical in comparison to the very radical politics that were becoming um, very clear throughout the country and globally. And also like, what was happening, instead like I said, the international influence on film and what was being done experimentally, like this film was was not actually giving, you know, what it was supposed to give. <laughs>
2: I'm so glad you mentioned like the, that the Black Panther Party had been, just had been founded in Oakland. Cause I, watching this for the first time as an adult, I really kind of latched onto it being set in San Francisco. That was so interesting to me because I, like, In the Heat of the Night is a Southern story, right? You have like a Philadelphia cop who is going into this small town. We're here in the hills of San Francisco and Spencer Tracy's character mentions the very small percentage of San Franciscans who are Black. But this is like a a city with a hugely racist history, but not in this way. Like, you know, not not this type. And then this is the summer of love. Like, this is also like... a really a time of like counterculture and here we have like two characters the whole thing is about their romance they don't even kiss you know it's so it's just so kind of um sanitized but um there was a lot when i was looking the movie up afterwards like i believe they made this movie before loving day virginia but then it didn't come out until afterwards there's this scene And it felt like a stage play in the sense of, like, every character, every pair of characters gets to have their one scene where they, like, talk about the issue. Um, But you have the scene with the housekeeper who, the the one, like, creative filmmaking choice is this, like, massive Dutch angle that happens. That's like, this is about to be, like messy (laughs) and apparently i read that like she she comments like who's maybe it's not even in that exact scene but like who's going to be coming to dinner next martin luther king and then he was assassinated like between the filming and its release so that was cut out until later being restored into the movie but like just that it it makes it was seem so emblematic of like a movie That was made for people who would say like, wow, Hepburn and Tracy are like my, my movie stars. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to go see them in like a really progressive movie where they talk about how progressive they are. And... And that's like, like, they're so brave for taking, they're so brave for doing this movie or whatever. I I feel bad, like disrespecting this movie, but I feel like it has this like green book quality of just like, don't, don't we feel so good about like having made this movie for us? And like, that's the point of it. I mean, I really, I kept thinking how the girl in the movie, who's Catherine Hepburn's niece in real life, like don't care, she's an idiot, she's 23. Like, she could be getting married to, like, any 37-year-old widower, and I would be like, what are you doing that you just met? But every other character, like, is not as interesting as ultimately as Spencer Tracy. Like, this is really about, like, this patriarch. The whole ultimatum that's set up is based on his, like, appraisal of the situation. And, And, Fulana, I think I'd seen in your email, like, I knew that you had some... Expertise in talking about black women on film. And so I thought in particular about like the two black women in this movie who are the housekeeper and the younger woman who helps her out who's in like one and a half scenes and her whole thing is to be like the only sexy character we ever see.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God, that dance scene. (laughs) What the fuck was
2: that? I was hoping there'd be like a post credits where those two would still just be like grooving (laughs) in the van somewhere. Like, (laughs) but those are like the two, these two women. And, And then we have the mother who's also like very, she's just like, she's there. She's not nearly as interesting as Catherine Hepburn, but like,
1: she's i don't know like yeah yeah you know i found what i found really interesting was even when you look up the credits um so isabel uh, so Bea richards and roy glenn are sydney portier's parents and their names are only mr and mrs prentice there's no we don't even have first names for them like we do matt drayton and christina drayton you know um spencer and Catherine, and i was like wow that's that's really interesting that kind of is you know emblematic of like the depth of the black characters in this film um i really i think it's it's important to point out bea richards who plays um sydney portier's mother because she was a very known probably more so in black communities like stage actress Um, and also film actress, and also super, super um, political um, and activist, very, very vocal about um, roles and opportunities available for Black performers. Um, And it's so interesting that, you know, she had in a a documentary on her life, um, it is kind of a joke is made about her playing this role, because she's so anti, like, also like anti, like, Nonviolent, anti like you know assimilation and all these things Mm. and it's like she was the exact and complete opposite actually in real life um as a performer as an activist just as a black woman in this country but she did this role and it was kind of it, it was a joke it's funny like in the ways that like people around her talk about her like her doing this role and kind of like who she actually was and like you know, it was really a check. It was, it was a check. It was a check. That, that, that is what it was because, you know, she was so, like I said, vocal and, and radical in her own politics that her participation in this film is actually kind of ironic, um, which I find is, is, is interesting. And then we have like, you know, Isabel Sanford, who we later see in, you know, the Jeffersons, iconic, you know, Weezy Jefferson later on for many, many years. And this was kind of like an early sneak peek of her. And she's amazing. She's like very, you know, she's being the character she's supposed to be super mean, you know, like (laughs) like very just like, you know, but it's also like this mammy character in reality, like she's extremely protective of this white family who she's taking care of for 25 years or something like that, you know, and it's just like, I don't know. I think for both of these Black women kind of seeing the trajectory of their career, their background, like playing in this role was ironic and kind of comical um, because they were so anti kind of everything this film represented or the white audience it was made for, you know? So I always, I think that's, that's funny. Well, good for Bia Richards signing up for a, a
2: paycheck and also getting an Oscar nomination out of it. <laughs> I, she and the mom senior got nominated for Best Supporting Actress and actor, <laughs> respectively. And he was a funny character because he was yeah. just, like, there to be, like, drunk and just be like... <laughs> Yeah, this is great. Love it. Comic
1: release. <laughs> <laughs> you,
0: you know, one thing I love about this series that we're doing um, is is rooting it in rooting these films in the times in which they come from. Because like I without knowing anything to me, I'm like, oh, this movie was like a big deal. And like people, you know, and like you're like, no, man, nobody really gave a shit. And I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. Like that's like when we take media out of the context in which it was created in the time period, like it. it we lose mm, so much um, why it's important or not important or what have you. Right. And so like this gets to live is this like historical, like, look how, like you're saying, like the green book energy of pat ourselves on the back. Um, When you're like, nah, we didn't really care. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone was fucking over it.
1: Yeah. I mean, essentially Sidney Poitier had to rebrand pretty much after this decade because m- media was heading film, black, media conversations about blackness were heading in a completely different direction like we go into the black exploitation era immediately after this and Sidney Poitier becomes a director he's starring alongside you know Bill Cosby and these films that were actually for black audiences you know and it's like completely and totally different from all the stuff he had done he does like Uptown Saturday Night you know and Let's Do It Again which are like completely different from the roles he had played all throughout his career. So he recognized that like the need to rebrand moving into this next decade, because guess who's coming to dinner was, was not hitting no, like nobody was like, oh yeah, look at our man. It's like, this is old, you know, like he's been doing the same thing for a very long time. We were having very like much different conversations at this point. Um and you see that what what happens with his career in the 70s and what he does differently.
0: Yeah, it's also like a uh, very telling of just how Hollywood is always behind the times, yeah. and not like risk taking and mm. then like oh we can do this now. Like it's sort of like corporate energy of like oh well I guess we have to jump on this bandwagon or else we look out of step. Mm-hmm. Right that kind of that kind of energy. Um thank you so much for joining us, Philana. Yeah, no. uh, this was wonderful and lovely. Um, Is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to share that you're working on or send people to or social media?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter per every academic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My Twitter name is my name, Felana Payton. Um, But yeah, I have a piece I think that I'm really proud of that I I like to point people to in regards to kind of getting a little sense of the kind of work that I'm doing and will continue to do um, in Black Star's journal. Um, It's called Scene and it was not this latest issue but they had an issue um, that came out, I think in like winter of 2021. Um, And it's a piece where I interview two um, up and coming amazing filmmakers uh, Sophia Nali Allison and Mirari Garima. Um, and I just think it's like, it's one of the pieces that I'm very proud of. But also I have work coming out very soon, hopefully, um, that centers Black women performers that uh, I'll probably be giving updates on on my Twitter when it's released. Yeah.
0: Awesome. That's
1: super Thank exciting.
0: So yeah. Well, so everyone follow her Twitter so that you can keep uh, apprised of all of these great um, projects that are coming out. All right, y'all. Thank you for listening to Feminist Frequency Radio. Our show is engineered by Rob Perra. Carrie Stimson provides technical support. Artwork by Jamie Varon. And our intro music is by Phil Circus. Thanks, y'all. See Bye. ya. Bye.